welcome back to our true crime podcast don't blame the mom my name is kate my name's hannah welcome back guys it's uh great to be here as always yes <laughs> and we are officially on episode 30 i know now i can say i can't believe it <laughs> no, I, th- I feel like i'm allowed to say it at this point so well, yes it's a milestone i think it is a big milestone yeah i mean can we is the next milestone going to be 40 or is it 50 well, 40. Okay. I'm thinking in tens, no? Fine. Let's go with tens. Yeah. So we we'll promise we'll try not to say that again until episode 40. Yeah, that's a promise, guys. Mm-hmm. So yeah, welcome back. We are here recording Friday evening. And I uh, haven't seen you for a while again, Kate. She's been living it up at another wedding. She is officially... I feel like you're the most like popular person in the world. You were invited to so many weddings. It's actually insane. Gallivanting around. Yeah. You were actually emceeing at a wedding as well, I believe. I was emcee at this last wedding. Yeah, a wedding for my good friends, Claude and Rick. Congrats, guys. Um, Aww. Yeah, so it was my first time ever being an emcee. Um, So it was actually really nerve-wracking. I bet. (laughs) No one's been stupid enough to make me one, luckily, so... I mean, they would not imagine to get the microphone back off, would they? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you've pretty much had your grubby mitts on yours for quite a while. (laughs) True, I did. No, it was great, and it was such an honour to be asked to do something like that. That's, you know, an important role. Yeah, of course. It's amazing. Yeah, it was loads of fun, and the wedding was fabulous. It was in a really beautiful hotel in Dublin, and you know it was just nice getting home got to see my mom while I was at home which is great and hang out with her a little bit not as much well I never told you my flight was delayed seven hours (gasps) what yeah yeah it's so annoying it's not even a long flight isn't it like an hour or something yeah it's been an hour to Dublin yeah so it is but um I yeah we were oh yeah I was kind of panicking I was thinking oh no like if this flight doesn't go we're gonna oh have to go God. the next morning and obviously the wedding was on the next day <gasps> so but Can't yeah find. seven bloody hours in Heathrow so and like what? Heathrow isn't well terminal two anyway it's kind of the boring terminal mm. there's not really much there no there's not I mean I, I kind of I'm a fan of terminal five at Heathrow that's my favorite because it's like for like quite long haul flights yeah. I think but like say if you're flying to somewhere like is it is it international where it's a long haul flight um yeah yeah oh, okay <laughs> Geography skills are at it again. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because they have like really good shops there. They have like all the designer shops and stuff. Not that I can buy in, the, in there. Yeah, but, but I yeah, just like exactly. Like, that's kind of what I find boring because I'm like, yeah, it's great looking on all this, but I'm not going in to buy anything from here. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Definitely not buying a Gucci bag. No, I'm not going in. Well, actually, somebody well, did buy a Gucci bag recently. I might have bought a Gucci bag, but you know, I've, I feel like I earned it. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like, you know, I had to strike that one off the list, you know, one thing, something to do before you're 25. Oh, is that how old you're trying to say you <laughs> yes. are? Mm-hmm. Yes. But look at the lies spilling uh, out of this young lady's mouth. Regressing every day. Like mentally ben- and physically. Benjamin Button here. <laughs> Benjamin Gina. Literally. But no, you looked amazing. That dress that you wore, I mean, so mermaidy, so oh, pretty. Thank you. So sparkly. Yeah, I love a sparkle, and yeah, I did. Love. Yeah, no, well, we love. know you love glitter, Kate. I think I, we established that last we week. We did establish <laughs> the glitter, the love for glitter that I hold. Um, maybe I just need to make that like a regular. Yeah. But no, I did. I loved my dress, which was great because I was one of those where I just couldn't find anything, and then I found it, and I was like, oh my god, this is the one. Beautiful though. Yeah, thank you. No, yeah. I did. I really, really loved it, and it was great to be home and see everybody, and you know, yeah, that family, especially Claude's family. Like I've grown up with that family, so they've kind of been part of my life since I was tiny. So it was great to be there oh i know love a love an irish wedding i've never been to one but i like to watch videos of them and be like oh they're good crack you know they are definitely good crack uh they never end and we did have a day two which was just as much fun as day one. Oh my I, god i could not cope yeah no it was a great weekend it was so much fun and i i lived it up in dublin and had the love best it. time love it well whilst you've been gallivanting around ireland i myself today have been spraying pine cones on yes. my roof garden you have i, I arrived have to been. hannah's house where we were recording <laughs> and outside are a bunch of pine cones <laughs> now i did ask hannah did she pick those pine cones herself the answer is no she did not no i didn't um so she was like did you get those from Richmond Park? And I was like, no, Kate, I didn't because I have learnt from my mother <laughs> to not go and pilfer things from Richmond Park because apparently you're not allowed to pick things from Richmond Park, Who even knew? when they're on the floor. I know, I actually didn't know. But it's quite a funny story. My mum, good old Jan, 
She uh, was in Richmond Park, which is a park very local to us, like five minutes down the road. Like I said, we like to give away our location all the time, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as you do. And um, and she was picking chestnuts off the floor. I think it happened about twice. And the park, the Royal Park Police, <laughs> I gave can't. her a written warning because they said you're not allowed to actually pick, even though they fall on the floor, you're not actually allowed to take them. What I like most about this for John is that John gave her honest address yeah. well i know i mean as much as a as a, of a thug life she clearly has yeah <laughs> thug you know, life job I, I don't know if the thug life chose her or <laughs> she in fact chose it but um she did get stopped by the park police and a written uh letter saying that she is not allowed to do that again and um in fact my cousin quite fondly one year got it framed love this <laughs> i actually love that so yeah it was so funny so no i didn't i actually got these pine cones from amazon because i was spraying them gold you know that, that is jan's side gig what she's really doing oh, yeah. is selling those pine cones and chestnuts yeah. and you've just bought yeah. them from your mother okay it's like you bla- she's basically just got a little shop on amazon you just like she just mugged you off i was like oh my god she probably did uh, thanks mom no, so that's what I've been doing, trying to get some decorations for the uh, impending impending wedding, the upcoming wedding, shall I say. The big day. Yes, not yeah. long now, five, or really, s- five weeks. Is it only five weeks? Yes. Wow. I know. It's I happening. Know. Yeah, so that's been exciting. But yeah, I've been a, like the worst kind of thing actually is the, the little details, organizing, decoration, things like that. I can't stand things like that. Like I come from quite a creative family, like all my sisters and yeah, that, my sure. mum, they're all good at like decorating and and art and whatever, but I just can't be asked with it. Can't you just make one of these one of these sisters do all that for well, you? Well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Why do you think I recruited them and you as bridesmaids? Because love, you're going to be doing it as well. Great. Surprise! Can't wait. Am I going home today with a box of pine cones and yes. some gold spray? I'm going to give you some gold spray. I'm going to give you some pine cones, and they're not from Richmond Park, so you won't have to hide them when you see police go past. Okay, just 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 letting you know. But yeah. Right, so do we have any shout-outs? I actually do know that we have one. So Jamie, who contacted us via Insta this week, Jamie is a new listener. She says she's loving the pod. So thank you, Jamie, for your lovely message. And we love having you listening. Yes, thank you so much for your support. And everyone else, all our new followers on Spotify and on um, Apple Podcasts, and all on our social media as well. Like it's so nice to get any sort of messages and anyone reaching out and giving us any feedback or just, you know, anything you want to say. We just we just love it. Really, really helps, doesn't it? Well, we also had a lovely message from a, a lovely lady called Courtney. Now, Courtney was very complimentary on how we looked in uh, one of the videos that we put <laughs> oh, on no, Instagram. Bless her. Well, so nice. Bless poor Courtney, because she definitely needs to have her eyes tested. But <laughs> I Courtney, I literally looked back at the video that she commented on, and I could not look any goofier if I tried. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm kind of laughing, but you know when you're like hunched over, and I kind of look like I have big bucked teeth out here. And I was like, oh my God, Courtney, thank you so much, but I look so... I was, I was almost embarrassed looking at the video. Oh, it was, was really like... nice of her. She was like, I don't usually like see or or sort of like watch anything of like what the podcasters look like or anything. Because you kind of have an image in your head of what people look like, which I totally agree with. Like, yeah, you know. 100%. But then she was like, oh, you guys look really nice. And we were like, oh, thanks. Thanks, Courtney. Oh my God. I was like, that like made my day. It's 100% made my day. Talk really about nice confidence boost. Felt yeah. fantastic. But so I, nice one, Courtney. I did actually post on our Instagram. I think it's on our highlights. Some um, shockingly bad. Screenshots of us. Fabulous. Where, I think like, it's more accurate and that one, should be kept up. Yeah, there's one where like I've got like one eye open, one closed. Nice. Like I'm almost like drooling at one point. <laughs> <laughs> like not not the prettiest of pictures. There's one where you know like your your eyes are like it looks like you're almost like stoned or something. Great. Which you're absolutely not. <laughs> Great but look. It's just like, oh my god, we have to post these because they, they are, are funny. Shockingly bad. And very accurate. So they exactly. are always funny. Yeah, so trust me, Courtney, we do not um usually look nice at all so really appreciate it <laughs> um what else do we need to talk about i suppose do we have a don't blame us no i don't think we do fabulous blameless oh, yeah. again i know i know i know but we'll see we might we might actually get some from today's episode i'm sure we will so feel free as always to correct us on anything we get wrong or pronounce wrong or 
I don't know. Just, or just anything just you feel like telling us. us. Guys, we're ready for you. We sure are. So let's get into the episode we're going to do, I think, shall we? Let's. And just before we do, as usual, trigger warnings for everything that we are going to speak about today. Yes. We will give a little bit of a heads up for some of the more awful parts. Mm. Um, all of our sources will be in our show notes. But as always, we'll say a few of them as we go through. Yeah. Surely I'll mention Netflix at least once or twice. Always. And Hannah will definitely mention Ted Bundy. Uh, and actually, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're actually not wrong. I hate to say it, but Kate's right. But it's actually... Um, relevant, is it? It's very relevant. Okay, mm-hmm. this time, I so. feel like we get that every week. So I've, been, I've been waiting for a while. <laughs> so, let's get into it, guys. Buckle up. So, Israel Keys is something of an anomaly. He stands alone in the nefarious realm of American serial killers. He may not quite be a household name like John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy. Oh, nice. Who, Already in. Exactly. Who he actually, he researched and idolized. So not me. Keyes has, however, been called one of the most ambitious, meticulous and terrifying serial killers in modern history. While in custody, the abduction and murder of 18-year-old Alaskan barista Samantha Koenig in 2012 34-year-old father of one Keyes confessed to slaying seven other people around the United States. His calculated crimes reached a level of premeditation that law enforcement had never encountered before. This average-looking man was a cold-blooded predator, prowling hiking trails, campgrounds, and remote areas whilst burying his kill kits all over America. These infamous kill kits contained weapons and supplies he'd dig up and use for the capture and murder of the next victim he chose, no matter what their age or sex. Carefully disposing of his victims' bodies, far from the murder scenes, he would make sure to add distance between himself and his crimes, preventing police from linking them. Authorities believe that Keyes played down the real number of murders he committed. They believe that he snuffed out even more lives, at least 11 more, as he traversed the country hunting for people to torture and kill at random. Keyes took his own life that December, taking his secrets with him to the grave and leaving many questions still unanswered. This is episode 30, Israel Keyes, part one. So it's around 8 p.m. on February 1st, 2012, an 18-year-old Samantha Koenig is working the late shift at a drive through coffee stand, which stood by the side of a four-lane road in her hometown of Anchorage, Alaska. Common Grounds was a cute little kiosk in the parking lot of the Alaska Club Fitness Center at 630E Tudor Road. So that was, it was now like obscured at this point by snow drifts, some up to five feet high. So it's quite hidden away. It was open later than other coffee stands and isolated from the other stores nearby. It had been a record-breaking winter for Anchorage that year, so snow was already piled so high, blocking views of the coffee stand from Tudor Road, so no one could really see it if they were to drive past. So because of its location at the northeast of the parking lot, people coming and going from the Alaska Club couldn't see the stands from the north side either. So working in there, you're pretty much just on your own. No one can really see you, making it the perfect place for a dangerous predator to launch an attack on an unsuspecting victim. Now, Anchorage is a really small community, and despite it being the largest city in Alaska, less than 10% of the municipality is populated. It's a really hard word to say. That, I was just going to say, well done. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, I really had your back there <laughs> for that you. one. Thank you. You were rude with me there, weren't <laughs> I you? was. Yeah. So approximately half of Alaska's residents live within the Anchorage metropolitan area. So clearly, if you live in Alaska, this is the place to be. Um I bet there's a whole lot of people in Alaska that you've now just isolated from listening to us ever again. <laughs> well, no, they said, I mean, they said, like, obviously, like, that's where, like, most people are. Okay. Uh, uh, inhabiting. So the rest of it is quite rural? It's exactly, yeah. So approximately half of Alaska's residents live within the Anchorage metropolitan area. So if you live in Alaska, like I said, it's a place to be. How many people did you say are there? Um, I'm about to get to that. Oh, sorry. 10% of the municipality. So 10% of Alaskans live there. Okay, fine. Or something like that. So Anchorage was also the home of another notorious serial killer back in the 1980s, Robert Hansen, who was also known as the Butcher Baker. And he's the one that would fly his like 17 victims out to the wilderness on his plane and then hunt them for sport with his guns. Do you remember him? Oh my God. So scary. There's a really good film about him. There is. Wolf Creek? Frozen Ground. Frozen Ground. With Nicolas Cage, I think it is. Mm. And and what's the guy? I can't remember what the guy is who plays him, but he's really famous. Oh, 
He's like Nicolas, a really good actor. Cage? No, no, no. <laughs> I think Nicolas Cage is in it, but like there's another quite famous actor who plays Robert Hansen. I can't remember. Like people are probably like shouting at us now. We know what it is or who the actor is, but he's really he's really good. And his sister's a famous actress as well. Gillen oh. Halls. No, it's not the Gillen Hall, but sisters. he's really good. He, oh, anyway, I'll, we'll, we'll let's put, sit we'll, here we'll, and discuss this for the next 10 yeah, minutes exactly exactly <laughs> so he actually was from Anchorage as well but that's a story for another day we'll, we'll cover that case down the line so Alaska is the largest United States US state by area comprising more total area than the next three largest states which are Texas California and Montana Fun facts for you there. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> yep, you're welcome. <laughs> so because it's so sparse and isolated, this leaves it wide open for predators to travel through virtually undetected. Some would say Anchorage is the perfect place to commit the perfect crime. There's just so much vast space and wilderness where you could potentially do whatever you wanted and no one would be around to hear or see it. It's pretty scary when you think that there could be evil-minded people out there using that isolated land to mm. their advantage. It's very terrifying. Yeah. Unfortunately for pretty brunette Samantha, one such predator had already scoped out this coffee stand well before. Then realizing it's isolated and dark, he decided to strike and launch his attack on that cold, fateful night. Sam is only five foot five and weighs about 140 pounds. So she's a really slight girl. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to refer to her as Sam from now on. Okay. She'd only been working there as a barista for just over a month. So she's very new to the job. And as the only barista working there that night, it's her job to clean and cash up and do all the sort of bits and bobs before closing. So it's nearly closing time as she does this. And the plan is her boyfriend, Dwayne's gonna come pick her up after the shift ends very shortly. But when he arrives to take her home, Samantha is not there. So he thinks, okay, that's really strange. So he goes home where he, he eventually sees her dad, James Koenig, and he tells him about it. And suddenly he gets a text message from Sam's phone saying, I'm spending a couple of days at my friend's house. Let my dad know. So again, very strange. You yeah, know, just really a odd. random text out of the blue. She's, he's meant to pick her up. She's not there. Very, very odd behavior from her. And was this kind of out of character? Very out of character. Yeah. So they had been together for nine months. So he knew her well enough to know that that wasn't right. It wasn't her usual kind of behavior at all. So all night, she doesn't return home. So she was reported missing the next morning on Thursday, February the 2nd, 2012, by the next barista who was to come in and work the morning shift. When she arrived, she knew instantly that something was wrong. Things were left in a bit of a state in that kiosk. And Sam was usually really good at leaving everything tidy the way it was meant to be. And also, when she checked the tills, they were empty. So the previous mm -hmm. nights, yeah, the previous night's takings were gone. So, of course, she um, calls the police. Samantha is reported missing and the police arrive. Mm -hmm. They decide to look at the CCTV from inside the kiosk to try and see what exactly was going on. What was Sam doing the night before to leave this kiosk in such a state? So, as they do, a horrible realization creeps over them. They watch as Sam is working inside. She's going about her business, cleaning, moving things, doing her job. Just basically all the normal stuff. She's wearing a green t-shirt and black pants, looking just like a normal 18-year-old girl, nothing out of the ordinary going on, until a man approaches. You can make out his dark silhouette as she takes his order. So she's making the coffee, and then as she turns around, she seems suddenly shocked or startled. Her whole body language changes instantly. She jumps back and holds her hands up, almost in like a, like, I surrender type way. Mm -hmm. She switches off the kiosk lights, causing the video to become really hard to see as a dark shadow then leaps in through the window. Terrifying. Terrifying. He's towering over her in the darkness. So can, can I just say, seeing this happen... Yeah, it, have you seen the yeah, YouTube seen, clips on I've it? seen it on, online, I've seen it on YouTube. And seeing this like shadowy figure yeah. leap into that small it's, cramped space. It's kind space. of like he almost kind of slithers in. He's, he's, he's like so stealthy. Yeah. So predatory. It's just, it literally is giving me chills talking yeah. about it. It's really terrifying to watch. So, um, poor, poor fucking girl, honestly. Um, so this video is available to view online, by the way, if you want to see what we're talking about, but I will warn you, it is very difficult to, to watch. And it's also actually, once the lights go out, it's, you know, it's very grainy. It's hard to see. It exactly is just, what's going it on. is silhouettes really. Yeah, it is. So at this point it is hard to make out. You're right. It's the silhouettes and they're kind of just visible against the dark of the kiosk. Mm. Now police are so shocked. 
could it be a robbery? Because she had her hands held up like showing submission. So then all they see is that they leave the coffee stand disappearing into the dark, cold night. So what happened to Sam after that? And most importantly, where was she now? Further surveillance showed a man approaching her coffee stand, stalking with intent through the snow up to the window of the kiosk. But it's too far to see any more than that. The kidnapper's face is unfortunately not visible, except he has a dark hooded sweatshirt on, possibly a baseball cap. Mm. So now a massive search begins. At least two dozen detectives at first were working to sort through leads in the case. Police and volunteers were braving the sub-zero temperatures to try and search for her. Everyone is confused and worried. There's people donating thousands of dollars and there's a, a reward of $12,500 that's been raised and, and offered to her dad for information on her whereabouts. He was really vocal and persistent in the press and the news for just begging for her safe return. He was just hoping and praying that whoever had taken his daughter would release her safely. He said to the press, please send my daughter home. I'll give you anything in this world. So mm, heartbreaking. Yeah. So whilst the search was ongoing, he also said in relation to any ideas of like potential suspects, he's like, I've got suspicions, but that's all they are. And he didn't want to name any people. But he did mention in some interviews that Sam had almost filed a restraining order on someone in the past. So alluding to that person potentially being involved somehow. But of course, he was clutching at straws like any parent would, probably yeah. trying to think of any you know clue or whatever. And James Koenig also said Sam had only worked at Common Grounds just for a month and she'd been really enjoying it. He said she was such a sweetheart. She's got the biggest heart and she has genuine love and care for people. She befriends people so easily. Everyone that meets her, they call her their best friend. That's just her personality. She's funny and she loves life. So she sounds like such an amazing daughter and such a, you know, a nice girl. Yeah. She was the fourth of six children. So she'd got three sisters and two brothers and they were all helping to search for her as well. So the people of Alaska really pulled together during this time. They made t-shirts, they made like pens, flyers, they had them out throughout the whole of Alaska. There was a candlelight vigil which was organized and attended by hundreds of people. Everyone was just devastated. You can see from news clips and footage how it affected the whole entire community. Everyone's just like crying and so worried for the safety of this young teenage girl. So police are pulling up any evidence from that night that they can. And a nearby business CCTV surveillance video shows a white pickup truck that Sam was led to after leaving the kiosk with the man. Then you see it drives away. It looks like a 1999 to a 2007 Chevrolet pickup truck. So this is a lead, finally something for them to go on. Yeah. Police try to track down how many of these cars are on the roads and realize there's several thousand of these vehicles in Alaska. So it's a lot. Um, I, I mean, white car in snow. I feel like that's a really difficult car to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, luckily... Sh- there's so many people have white cars. Oh, completely. But luckily they had that um, surveillance to sort of, to give them anything, really. Yeah. Because at, at this point, there was nothing, just mm-hmm. nothing to go on. So to aid the police with the search for Sam, the FBI comes in and brings extra manpower. They've got criminal profilers, special agents, just the best of the best to try to figure out what happened. Was it a stranger abduction or was it personal? So they use every avenue available to them. They go through social media, every single line of inquiry they follow up, but nothing. The search just seems to hit a dead end. Meanwhile, her dad's still campaigning for her safe return. Then two and a half weeks after her abduction, her boyfriend, Dwayne, gets a text message from Sam's phone to his phone. It says, Connor Park, sign underneath Albert Pick, ain't she pretty? So, yeah, very cryptic. So this is a park five miles southwest of downtown Anchorage. Police immediately rush straight to this park, not knowing what to expect when they arrive. Will Sam be there waiting? Has she been released? Was her kidnapper waiting? Who who knows? Oh, God. All they knew was that time was of the essence and they had to get there and fast. So they swiftly arrive at Connors Lake Park. And as you enter the park, there's a bulletin board. Now, this board had different posters on it, like notes, pictures of dogs, people asking for dog walkers, just, you know, general things like, just normal stuff. Things going on in the community and stuff. So police scan the board for any signs of Sam. Then they see that pinned to this board, hanging underneath a picture of a golden doodle dog called Albert, was a Ziploc bag. And opening that, they find inside a Polaroid picture. It seemed to be a picture of Sam 
and it looked like she was holding an Anchorage Daily newspaper. So the image in this pic is really a terrible haunting sight. Mm -hmm. We can't see the original one. However, there is like a a remake of the picture online and you can see in it that it's a young girl. It's very out of focus and fuzzy and the girl's eyes looked glassy, almost like glazed over to the point it's hard to tell whether she's actually alive or dead. Her skin looks like mottled and maybe sort of discolored but again it's hard to tell mm-hmm. um and there's more written on the back of the photo is a ransom note the note demanded that thirty thousand dollars be placed into sam's account so this is really something that gives them all hope if there's a ransom it must mean that she's still alive out there somewhere and there's still hope there's still a chance that she can be rescued and saved they've now just been given their biggest clue yet So police take the picture to her dad, James, who looks at it for a long time and then he confirms, yes, that's definitely my daughter. Except he said her hair was different to how she would wear it. In the ransom picture, which was referred to as the proof of life picture, her hair was in a braid, which is something she would never wear in her hair. But nonetheless, it was officially confirmed she was the girl in the picture and the date on the newspaper was to prove she's still alive on that date. So the kidnapper demands his demands of $30,000 now had to be decided on and organized as soon as possible in the hope it could lead to the safe return of Sam so don't forget there were floods of donations in the search for her that her dad had access to okay so the reward fund for information leading to her safe return at this point had grown to and surpassed the sum that her kidnapper was demanding right so apparently now it's around $70,000 apparently Jesus yeah So they transfer a portion of the ransom, but not the whole amount, just $5,000 at this point from that fund to go along with the kidnapper's demand. So authorities work in collusion with James Koenig to quickly deposit this money into Sam's bank account as was requested. So the money's in there and now all they can do is wait. Authorities had also taken the step of quickly working out a deal between the bank and Anchorage Police Department. So it meant police would be notified immediately by the bank if her debit card was used anywhere. Would Samantha's abductor be brazen, almost stupid enough to use her bank card now? Yes, luckily for them, (laughs) he was. Yes, he would. Yes, he was. After a few days go by, authorities are alerted because Sam's abductor had made the first withdrawal, followed by two more shortly thereafter. So in total, there were three in the city of Anchorage up to the daily limit of $500 so that he couldn't take out any more up past that point Mm -hmm. on one day. As soon as the alerts came, police sped to the cash point or ATM, but there was no one there. They literally just minutes behind him and they just missed him. So quickly retrieving? Yes, quickly retrieving the CCTV from the ATMs of the person withdrawing this cash, the image on screen is seriously sinister and spooky. He's wearing sunglasses, a mask, and his hood up, and he's wearing gloves, so there's barely any skin or anything that could be recognizable or visible at all. So nothing to go on from that. Then it all went silent, and all police could do was watch and wait. There was no more withdrawals until... March the 7th, when surprisingly, there is one made in Wilcox, Arizona. So that's over 2,000 miles away. So far. 2,000 miles away from Alaska, which came as a complete surprise to law enforcement. They weren't expecting that. So clearly, he's moving about and he's on the run. And then the next alert comes in. And this time, it's a withdrawal from an ATM in Lordsburg, New Mexico. So that's 480 miles from the last withdrawal. So he's all over the place, this guy. And then another withdrawal on March the 10th in Humble, Texas, 687 miles away from the last one. So he's covering some serious ground, ground. big time. And then just after, there was one in Shepherd, Texas. So the fact he's able to move around with such speed shows he's most likely now in a vehicle and he's very mobile. And still, every time law enforcement grabs CCTV from the withdrawals, this man taking out the money was wearing a mask. So they had to find out fast who was this faceless kidnapper. But luckily, he wasn't as clever as he thought. He was about to get too cocky and he's going to start to get sloppy. So get this. In CCTV footage pulled from a cash point uh, or ATM in Texas, they were able to see in the background of the video the vehicle the suspect had been driving. 
and it's a white Ford Focus. So now they know this is the car we're looking for. So they put out a bolo to all law enforcement in Texas. So a bolo, which most true crime fans know, stands for be on the lookout for. Um, and they're saying, you know, look out for this car. They also said it seems to be traveling eastbound, judging by all the locations of his withdrawals. Yeah. So there's at least a lead to go on. So on the morning of March 13th, 2012, there was a Texas Highway Patrol Corporal, Brian Henry, and a Texas Ranger called Stephen Rayburn on duty. And they see a white Ford Focus driving along. So it kind of piques their interest. And then they follow the car and see it makes a traffic violation. He's going three miles over the speed limit. <laughs> so, I mean, not a lot at all. Yeah. You know, not much to get caught on, but thank God he did. So they now have a reason to pull this car over. So... They pull the car over in the parking lot of the Cotton Patch Cafe in Lufkin, Texas. Approaching the vehicle, they find a young man in the driver's seat. He's clean cut. He's got brown hair. He's very regular looking. Nothing out of the ordinary about him at all. You can also see this online as well. Um, the patrolman asked to see his driver's license. And he just knows that this is the man and the car authorities told them all to be on the lookout for. The officer later says how Keyes seemed really relaxed, really unaffected, completely normal, not bothered at all. And it seems at this point he didn't know what the patrolmen already knew or what they suspected about him. Yeah. So they start searching the man's vehicle, which when they run the license plate, it's a rented for focus. Inside the vehicle, they find miscellaneous things like empty soft cans, empty soft drink cans, uh, wrappers, receipts. But then they find clothing. And it's dark clothing matching that which the suspect was seen wearing in the ATM CCTV. Also, there is cash stained with bright ink, indicating a dye pack from a bank robbery. So, oh so you know when people like rob yeah. banks, like the ink explodes on a timer, which means it's marked money. Yeah. So if that money is used, they can see that it was stolen. So they find that. So very, very suspicious. Not only that, there is a gun in the driver's footwell. Most incriminating of all, there is a debit card. And that debit card has a girl's name printed on it. Samantha Koenig. There is also a cell phone, which lo and behold, they later confirm belonged to her as well. So, I mean, this is a treasure trove of evidence to pull to pull him over. And I mean, it's amazing how the police forces work together so well there. Because, so well. I mean, we're in Texas now, right? In and Texas, that is from, so from, Ang far. from Alaska like, to New Mexico like the to south Texas. of America yeah. to like yeah. way of like the Absolutely. north of America yeah. you know what I mean and, I mean, and luckily because the FBI were involved at this point because it was all over the place yeah. so thank god because they can say <clears> like look out for this and everyone sort of will listen so this is the guy they have been looking for they have found their man for now they can arrest him on a federal charge of using a credit card illegally so law enforcement wastes no time in cuffing him and bringing him in he was extradited and taken to the FBI's field office in Anchorage, Alaska, where their special agents were ready for him. Whilst this is going on, the suspected kidnapper is asked, where is Samantha? He at first point blank denies any knowledge of any kidnapping. So now they've got their suspect. He's been driven to this jail. He's in custody, but the clock is ticking. And the most important question still remains, where is she? And who exactly is this mysterious kidnapper? They now know he's very likely responsible for her disappearance. The police have just arrested 34-year-old native Alaskan father of one Israel Keys. Little did they know as they're driving him into the station questioning that they have just arrested one of history's most sadistic, cunning and terrifying serial killers. A serial killer that nobody had even known existed. So Israel Keyes was born on the 7th of January in 1978 in Richmond, Utah. And he was part of a very large Mormon family. So he was born to parents John Keyes and Heidi Hawkinson. Israel was the second eldest of 10 children. Wow. I know, a lot. Um, so not long after Israel was born, John and Heidi started to become more affiliated with strong fundamentalist Christian beliefs. Um, so they, you know, he had an older sister called America, which I really liked. That's a great name. America, Israel. And then they named the children born after him after they became quite um, in with this fundamentalist mm. Christian beliefs. They named the children born after him Isaac, Charity, Hosanna, Sunshine, 
think there was an Autumn Rose, like all these kind of- They're actually quite cool names to be fair. All these kind of names, yeah. Way better than Hannah, it's so boring, (laughs) so basic. Me and Kate, Kate and Hannah. (laughs) We have such basic bitch names. (laughs) Sorry to everyone who's listening called Hannah and Kate, but Sorry to our parents who named us. Um, They did not trust the government and wanted nothing to do with modern media. All the children were homeschooled, which is actually very common within the Mormon faith. The family left Utah when Israel was a toddler and migrated to Colville, Washington. Um, His parents made the decision to live completely off grid. So they started a life in the forests of Washington. Wow. I know. Um, John being a builder um, and he was he was, you know, he was a carpenter, a builder. He was very much in those types of trades. But he began building a log cabin for their new as their new family home. But in the meantime, they were all just living in tents. Yeah. So they were wow. living in quite a nomadic quite a hard, lifestyle. Yeah, really. quite a hard nomadic lifestyle, definitely. So this lifestyle meant that Israel and his siblings did not have a conventional upbringing. His parents didn't want anything to do with modern medicine, and so all the children were born at home with John delivering all of his children. So, oh my god! I mean, that was all it said, but that to me means that some of those children were born in tents. Wow. And, that's, and, and successfully delivered, like, in the woods, 10 children. I mean... That's so old school. I, I mean, know. it's amazing. They were all delivered safely, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't read anywhere if there was any that didn't, but... Um, I'm yeah. sure Israel would have banged on about it if there, you know, <laughs> there wasn't. Um, this meant that none of the children's births were recorded, and Israel and his siblings were born with no social security numbers, no birth certificates. So they were really... Like they were non-existent. Almost off the grid. Well, they the were radar. off grid, but they were non-existent to the United States government because they didn't know that those children existed. Yeah, that's kind of they weren't. They weren't in school. No. So there was oh nobody to keep record of any of these no. children. Um, so living off grid meant that they never used gas or electricity growing up as children. Oh. I know. In I Washington, mean, that must have got really cold. I know. And like a lot of rain and stuff. Like it would have been, that would have been a hard life. Yeah. So although they were off-grid, they weren't completely isolated. They attended a Christian identity church in Washington called the Ark. Now, this particular sect of Mormonism was known for being extremely racist, especially against the Jewish. They were very strict about the belie- their beliefs, and both John and especially Heid- Heidi echoed the Ark's ideology to the children. Hmm. To earn money, the family would find whatever labor needs that they could find in their local community. And everything was on a cash in hand basis because they didn't use banks. Right. So, I mean, when I say they were off grid, they were completely. But imagine if like, I don't know, like their log cabin burnt down and then all their cash is in there. Well, they were in tents. They weren't in the log cabin. Oh. What what, what if the tents? What if the tents burnt down? You know, then what? All your money's gone. Yeah. You know? But I mean, I don't think they had much money. I think they grew up in, in a lot of poverty. Right. Um, where was I? Sorry, threw you off the banks there. My <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> um, so as they lived off grid in the forest, they would mainly hunt for food. Israel loved hunting and he really took to this. Tracking, stalking and killing were right up his alley. Absolutely. So even as a young boy, he would often wait in one spot for hours on end just observing the animals or people who might have been out in the forest that day. This wow. fascination for watching and developing incredible and developing incredible patience would all evolve and become part of his yeah. MO. And that's something that we'll get into a little bit later yeah. on. So this stalking behavior is very similar to that of Richard Ramirez and BTK Dennis yeah. Rader, whom both reveled in this thrill of stalking and then pouncing at the opportune mm. moment. I mean, BTK Dennis Rader, he loved sort of doing his homework and like, I'm going to watch this house for weeks. I'm going to watch them through the window, learn their timetable, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Very, very premeditated, like yeah. like Israel Keys. Absolutely. And like, I just think the fact that he kind of trained himself to stay so still. So scary. That is like the original Night Stalker. Um, yeah. What's his name? D'Angelo? D'Angelo, yeah. Joseph James D'Angelo. Yeah. Mm. Um, so he had a fascination growing up with BB guns and used to enjoy hiding and shooting people <gasps> or catching them off guard. Oh my God. I know, the little shit. Absolutely. Um, he collected these BB guns and would stash them in a cache either underground or in a secret location. Ah. This again would become something of a signature of his 
modus operandi oh Hannah, yes there we go which he would also we'll also get into that a little bit more later on mm. so this obsess, obsession with watching in the woods developed further when he was into his teens he started peeping into people's homes which then led into breaking and entering into people's homes and eventually full-on burglary mm. um and we see this is very common among serial killers again d'angelo did all this kind of stuff as well mm. and more often than not this excitement becomes sexual for them which is also the same as d'angelo yeah um so as a teenager his parents left the ark and joined the latter-day saints which are a famous sect of Mormonism. I mean, I think we've all heard of the Latter-day Saints in some way or another. Um, so they also have more than one serial killer connected to their sect. Oh. And one of these was actually in the community that, put, that is where I was growing up Who? in. Um, his name is Chevy Ke- Now, I would say Kyo, but everywhere I've heard it says Kyo. Kyo, yeah. Chevy Kyo. Um, who grew up half a mile from the Keys' new family home in Maupin, Oregon. So he actually used to hang out with Chevy and his brother Shane, who Shane was a bit of a what? wrong one as so well. So this serial killer hung out with his real Keys? Yeah. What? Yeah, they're uh, similar ages. Yeah, they, grew up to, they grew up in the same area. They actually hung out for a little while. That is nuts. I know. So in 1995, um, Chevy Keogh murdered a family of three and dumped them in a swamp. But, I mean, again, that's a story for another day. Mm. But this was the guy that they, they lived fairly close to each other growing up. I think, what did I say, within half a mile? Wow. At this stage, Keyes had progressed from burglary to arson. So after robbing homes, he would also set fire to people's homes after he had burglarized them. Like, it's just that a shit That is just, honestly, like, the worst. But again, it's almost part, it's part of the McDonald triad. It really is. Which You're is right. arson, you know, animal abuse, bedwetting. I mean, yeah. he loved a bit of arson, did his roll keys, he didn't he? He absolutely did. It just got uh, on and on and on. Mm. I, I mean, uh, This all is, like, massive indicators of, of what is to come. Yes. So his fascination with BB guns and now also, had now also progressed into real guns. And he would often carry a 22 revolver. And like he's still a child. He's still very young. Wow. But he was also like, stealing these from some of these houses that he was breaking into and selling them. Yeah. So, you know, he was, he was an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at the age of around 14, Israel started torturing animals. So there, there you go, your McDonald's child. Yeah. Are we going to do a trigger warning for this animal? We will. Mm. So this included pets in the local neighborhood. So Israel recalls an occasion around this time where he was getting frustrated with his sister's cat. Um, and the cat was getting into the rubbish bins. Now, this is a huge trigger warning for anyone who really can't handle anything about animals. Yeah. Just skip, 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 about two minutes. So he told that his sister, so he had told his sister, if he caught the cat in the trash again, he was going to kill it. And true to his word, he took the cat into the woods and with one of his other sisters and along with a few of his friends, he tied the cat to a tree using a 10 foot long bungee cord. He then shot this cat with the 22 revolver in the stomach and the poor cat howling in pain tried to escape. But obviously oh because it is tied to the tree, Hannah's now blocking her ears, because it is tied to the tree, it just kept running around in circles and Keys found this hilarious. That the cat he is such was, yeah. a piece of shit. I know. So this was one of the times that Key says he remembers thinking he was different to other people. No shit. Yeah, you are. One of his friends was physically sick watching what Israel had done. And after this, his friends didn't actually want to hang out with him anymore, making him even more of a recluse than he already was. So there's a quote from an interview with um, Keyes saying... I've known since the age of 14 that there were things I thought were normal and okay that nobody else seemed to think were normal and okay. The fact that he didn't even think that Mm. that was, uh, like, uh, like that that, he thought that was normal and people would be okay with that. It just shows the kind of mind that's forming there. Yeah, and he thought it was funny. Like, he he got a kick out of it. Sick. Yeah. So, at the age of 17, Israel started to rebel against his family. And even more against society, as if his behaviour was not unsocial enough at this stage. Mm. But much to his parents' disgust and disappointment, he renounces his Christianity, declaring himself an atheist, resulting in his parents, mainly his father, disowning him. The rest of the family then moved to Maine to join an Amish community. 
So the family really jumped from religion to as much as they jumped from place to place. Yeah. They're as much religious nomads as they were living like, locational nomads. nomads. Yeah. Um, around this time, not too long after he was rejected from the family home, when Keyes was 18 and living just outside Coldville, Washington, there was a strong suspicion that Keyes could have committed his first murder. Now, this is not something he ever admitted to. However, the location and timing of the murder makes him a very likely candidate. Mm. So on the 3rd of May, 1996, a 12-year-old girl who was a Paralympics champion competing in the prosthetics division of downhill skiing disappeared. Her prosthetic legs were discovered a month later by the Colville River and a fortnight later, two children discovered what remained of her body in a woodland area. Um... So now I will talk some more about his other comments, but I'm going to, I'll yeah. do it a little bit later on. Yeah. I'm going to get back to just, I just wanted to get that one in, in just because that's like kind of before he's 18. Mm. So in July of 1998, Keyes enlists in the army, spending most of his time stationed in Fort Lewis in Washington or Fort Hood, Texas. By now, Keyes was between six foot two and six foot four. He trained hard and was muscular and weighed about 230 pounds. So... That's 104 kilos or 16 and a half stone. Yeah. I've covered you all. Yeah, thanks, because I only do it in stone. So that's the only way I can understand. I know. I mean, I think once it gets into the big numbers, I'm like, well, yeah. that's, just, that's just really big. Like 16 and a half stone is massive. Yeah. Especially, he wasn't overweight. No, like, but he was light. This is solid. Yeah, yeah. solid. Um, until joining the army, Keyes had never really drank or done drugs before. So his fellow recruits found this very strange. And in order to avoid awkward conversations about this, he, and about his upbringing, I suppose, mm. he would say that he was Amish. Right. Which actually wasn't true, but he was a liar. Um, <laughs> while, uh, while he did try drugs for a little while, uh, mainly cocaine, it was drinking that he preferred and would often get rip-roaring drunk with his cohorts. Most, and he found that when he was drinking, he was more sociable. Yeah. Because actually, as I said, he, he was a bit of a, an outsider. Uptight. Yeah. But also, like, you know, as I said, he'd never drank. He yeah. was very much brought, brought up in a very different way to probably yeah, everybody else around him. Mm. So this kind of loosened him up. And I think this is why he really took a hold of the drinking. Yeah. Whilst in Washington, he decided to join a local singles chat line where he would meet Tammy Hawkins. And she would go on to be his first wife and the mother of his daughter. So after a few months of dating Tammy, she fell pregnant. So upon hearing this news, Israel confessed to her that he actually had a 19-year-old fiancé back in Colville. Player. <sighs> Rascal, yeah. However, Keyes broke things off with his fiancé, and once he was honourably discharged from the army, he married Tammy. So in his time in the services, Keyes received awards of honour, such as an Army Achievement Medal, Army Service Ribbon, Marksman Badge, Expert Infantry Badge, and an aerosol, aerosol badge was just some of the ones that I saw, I believe, on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, but, you know, so he he fitted in well, so much so that he, I think, was kind of surprised in his yeah. own right. That yeah, he, he, that he could fit, slot into It was something that group. he could follow, the structure. Yeah. He was very physically capable, so that part wasn't difficult for him. So Tammy had also had a difficult childhood in poverty, just like Keyes. So she felt that they both related really well mm. through that connection. And due to a tumultuous upbringing, Tammy was in and out of foster, foster care her whole life. And by 17, she actually had developed a serious alcohol addiction problem and had enrolled into an AA program. Mm. Um, so she, you know, she had a bit of a tough life. Yeah. Um, she did get clean, but when she was with Keys, she would drink around him. So she wasn't completely off alcohol, yeah. but maybe wasn't as, as a, she didn't have an addiction to it at that time. Tammy says that around this time, Israel began to change. Um, so remember, she's pregnant now. He became obsessed with this new, with new metal. He started playing online poker with an account named Blackheart. Um, he got an upside down cross tattooed on his chest and a pentagram tattooed on his neck. Now, she thought that this might be 
um, a delayed reaction to childhood trauma, yeah. fighting back against the Christianity he'd been kind of forced yeah, to follow rebellion. growing up. Yeah, just a bit of a rebellion. And, you know, that it was just delayed because of the type of upbringing he had had. Right. Um, and probably the first time he was kind of like, he lived with his parents that whole time. Then he's in the army, which is very regimented. Sorry. Yeah. So now it's the first time he's out and about on his own, do, yeah. making his own choices, really. So according to Tammy, Israel, after leaving the army, Israel was a pompous and arrogant control freak. Um, and he was also, she says, a highly functioning alcoholic. Um, despite this, she loved him. And the pair moved to a home on a Native American reservation as Tam- Tammy belonged to the Maka tribe, which resided there. Mm. So Israel got a job with the tribal council and recreational department. He was well liked there. He had a good job and, pe- you know, he, he got on well in that yeah. community. During the pregnancy, Tammy says that they argued about having the baby in a hospital but other than that, really, they didn't argue or she tried not to argue with him. She mm-hmm. really loved him and she tried to always keep the peace. Mm-hmm. And she said that other than that, they really had a great life together. Once the baby was born, Tammy says that Israel was obsessed with, the, with his daughter and by all accounts was a, was a really great dad. It's so surprising, isn't it? So when he was younger growing up, being the second eldest... He's, he's almost a father type figure. He really to was to the children. He really helped his mother bring up the children. Yeah. So much so that even when the dad kind of disowned him, she really didn't because she needed him. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't think his dad was as great yeah. with helping out with the kids. Right. And there is, and now I couldn't find any definites anywhere in Israel, never said, but they, the BAU teams who did have interviews with him, they thought... And Tammy also says that she thought potentially there was some kind of physical or emotional abuse going on there. Yeah. But that's, there's no definite answer there. So shortly after the birth of their daughter, Israel's father, John, passes away. So they, parents and I think some of the sisters and brothers had been on a train journey and his dad had become ill on the train and because they didn't believe in modern medicine, they weren't going to the hospital. So much so that the train had to actually stop and they physically had to say, you've got to get off this train and take this man to the hospital. Wow. There's no records that he ever did go to the hospital. He died two weeks later and there's no records of his death. Wow. So um, a few months after this, Tammy, who'd been suffering with abdominal pains since the birth of their baby girl, was diagnosed with cancer and she ended up having to have a hysterectomy. So she was put on really strong medication for this pain and with her previous ad- addiction issues, this was soon to become a problem. Mm. She felt like her life was falling apart and that because and she worried that because of the hysterectomy and everything else going on that Israel wouldn't want to be with her anymore. Yeah. Um, and the addiction of to the meds did get the better of Tammy again. And after this, he did start to bore of her. Um, the worse the addiction got, the more he pulled away from yeah. her. So finally, he started dating other people. And this is where he meets Kimberly on an online dating site. So Kimberly was older than him, older than Tammy as well, mm-hmm. who was also older than him. She was around 41 when he met her. And she was very successful. She had a good career. And he, he really took to her and was feeling very settled with her. So Tammy was very desperate to get Israel back and she was kind of still really struggling with this med medical or these meds that she was taking and she ends up crashing her car in a DUI and because of this she receives 21 days in jail and a mandatory two-month detox program as an inpatient Mm. she thinks that once she's clean that she and Keys will get back together he lets her believe this and kind of goes with this for a little while and he actually does start seeing her and sleeping with her again but he's still seeing his new girlfriend Kimberly on the side so he tells Tammy eventually that actually he is going to move to Alaska with Kimberly and she decides to try and make him choose between Kimberly or their child and she's really shocked when he chooses Kimberly she said that she never saw it coming because of how amazing Much he was with the daughter. So in 2003, I believe it was March, Keyes moves to Alaska to start a new life with Kimberly. So after investigators arrest Keyes, 
they search his wallet and what do they find but the driver's license belonging to Samantha Koenig and the ATM card. Now the ATM card was actually both Samantha and Dwayne's. I believe they had a joint account. Right. So getting Key's address from his driver's license, the FBI learned that the house at Spur Lane belongs to Kimberly Anderson and that Kimberly's registered vehicle is the same one spotted on the CCTV cameras earlier on in Anchorage in the ATM withdrawals using Samantha's card. So they obtained a search warrant and upon arriving at the proper sheet, they noticed the vehicle straight away in front of the house. So holding keys for interrogation, agents inform him that they have found Sam's driver's license and the ATM card, as well as pictures of his truck at the crime scene. Keys came up with a story that someone had left their bag on the trunk of his car with the cards inside and also, handily enough, the pin numbers to the ATM cards. Honestly. As if somebody would do that. Right. His demeanor is smug and arrogant, and he doesn't seem worried in the slightest. The agents know that they will need more evidence than this to pin him to Samantha's kidnap, and so does Keyes. They really need to find her. So on the 30th of March, after Keyes has been transported from Anchorage to Alaska, the FBI and the district attorney's office interrogated Keyes. Much to their amazement, he has agreed to talk. So Keyes obviously thought that the FBI had a lot more information than they did. So he wanted to negotiate on his terms. Always wanting to control. He, absolutely, he was such a control freak. So one of his demands was that he wanted to be put, on, put to death within a year. Right. The second is that he doesn't want any of his story going public as he doesn't want his daughter to know what he has done and he doesn't want her to be affected by what he has done. And so his story begins. On the evening of the 1st of February 2012, just after 7 o'clock, Israel Keyes get in, gets into the white Chevrolet. He goes to the Common Ground coffee stand for where he's been watching it for the last few days. He sees Samantha. He goes through everything that Hannah's already told us, where he takes her from the, from the coffee stand or the coffee kiosk. 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 Either either. <laughs> we'll go with kiosk. Um... So, so then he grabs her and he takes her to the car, doesn't he? Which is like something that they don't so, actually see in the CCTV. Yeah, so he starts to walk with her to the car and he says that Samantha actually breaks away and runs. Oh God, so, so brave. I know, it's so annoying because you're like, oh, why couldn't she just gotten away? Unfortunately, Keyes is too fast and he tackles her and he takes her to his vehicle, pushing her into the passenger seat. He tells her if she tries anything like that again, things are going to go very badly for her. He tells her that he was just going to hold her for ransom and make and to make it through this, she just needed to cooperate. So Keyes asks her for her bank card. She tells him that she doesn't have a card, that the boyfriend, Dwayne, has the card and it's to an account that they share. Samantha also tells him that the family don't have any money. Keyes tells her not to worry, that her family will get the money from somewhere. He then decides he's going to use Samantha's phone to send the ransom message. However, she had left her phone in the coffee stand. So he decides to drive back and get it. So brazen. It's so brazen. He takes another risk by leaving Samantha in the truck whilst retrieving the phone. I know. He said that Samantha does not try to escape though. And maybe it's because she was too scared or maybe she had hoped that if she cooperated, she'd survive. I mean, it's so hard, isn't it? Because you want to think, oh, I do this, I do that. You'll do anything to live. But but also, so many serial killers, I think we find, they pretend, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to do anything corporate. Um, Joseph James D'Angelo would always say, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to, whatever. That was part of his MO as well. It's because then, you know, once they're incapacitated and under your control, and then you're like, actually, I am going to kill you. There's nothing they can do at that point. Yeah. And I've actually written here, I know what Han's going to say here. Oh, never let them take yeah, you to another true, location because, but she was so brave to try and break away I she know. obviously knew I cannot go to another location with this guy mm-hmm. and because there was people walking past as well wasn't there um, whilst she tried to run away people going about the business at normal businesses just, nearby and I think as well because there was so much snow if you look at the video you know mm-hmm. people just look like they're kind of just struggling to make yeah, it to wherever exactly, they're going so exactly. they're not really paying much attention yeah, they're not going to know that what was happening as they walked past these, this man and this, and this girl and in the CCTV when you watch them walk away he has just got his arm around her shoulder yeah. 
And he obviously he must, must be pointing a gun at her somewhere, but you can't see that because you can just see the back of them. Right, yeah. So it just looks like a boyfriend having his arm around his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. You know, totally. or a dad and his daughter. Yeah, you know, yeah. you wouldn't know that this no. there's something wrong here, especially if you're, you know, head down, the snow's all around you, you're cold, you're just trying to get home you're or whatever. You're not thinking anything like that. So he then proceeds to drive to his home that he shares with girlfriend Kimberly. I mean, this guy is just so brazen. He leads Samantha, who is now blindfolded, into the shed. And when I say right next to the house, if you look at a photo, it is right next to right the house. Right next to, like literally, practically on the doorstep. It, it's un, I couldn't believe it when I saw the photo. And Kimberly is in the living room. Nuts. And I, I just couldn't believe it. Once in the shed, he ties a rope around her and ties her hands in front of her, telling her she can smoke if she wants to. He tells her he has some errands to run down and to run around in town to get the ransom underway. But he has a police scanner. And if he hears anything about the police coming, he will be able to make it back before they'll be able to make it here. Oh. Yeah, he's a scary Terrifying. guy. Yeah. With that, he turns out the lights, turns on the radio full blast so no one can hear her screams and leaves her locked up in the shed. After leaving the house, Keith sends two text messages from Samantha's phone, one to the boyfriend, Dwayne, and one to her boss, both saying she'd gone out of town for the weekend. After that, he takes the battery out of the phone to prevent it from being tracked. Having learned from Samantha the location of her boyfriend's truck and where his wallet is likely to be in the truck, he drives to go and get it. Again. Mm, so brazen. Uh, he's so cocky. It's he, like he really thinks cocky. he's above any, like, I'm never going to get caught. I'm too clever. Like, I can't believe you have the cheek to it. Police could already been there looking for her. Mm. Dwayne, her boyfriend, her father, all of them could have been there looking for her. It's so crazy. And he still didn't care. So he finds the truck and after grabbing the wallet from the truck, Dwayne actually hears him and comes out onto the street and out into the garden or into the street yelling. So Israel flees and manages to get away. When, when Keyes returns home, he discovers that his girlfriend has gone to bed. So he pours himself a glass of wine and then he goes out to the shed. Now, trigger warning, this is horrendous. So again, please skip if you are going to be triggered by anything that is... Violent, sexual assault. And, yeah, yeah. And even worse. So he unties Samantha from the wall and lays her down. He binds her even more and then wraps a 30-inch cable tie around her neck. He cuts off her clothes with a knife and proceeds to stab her in the back. He then rapes her while choking her with a cable tie, finally killing her. And this is really gross, I think. But he then hangs her body from a shelf and just sits there and finishes off his glass of wine. It's so sadistic. It's so sadistic. It's, it's terrifying that he could remain so calm cold in that situation. Disgusting, sick, what a sick, sick mind. Yeah. And then imagine. afterwards, Keyes goes into his house to take a shower and goes to bed. Now, you won't believe this, but the next day, he leaves to go away on a two-week holiday with his girlfriend and his daughter. The holiday includes visiting his mother in Texas and a five-day cruise around the Gulf of Mexico. When Keyes returns, he finds Sam's body has been completely frozen in the two weeks he's been away. Now, what Hannah has spoken about earlier is what's happening during all of this time. So, huge trigger again. Now, and this is really awful again. So Keyes, it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? It does. So Keyes thaws out her body and further sexually assaults her, corp- her corpse. So necrophilia. Yeah. Over the next few days, Keyes goes out to buy a camera and some film. He buys makeup similar to the makeup that Samantha had in her purse, fishing line and some sewing needles. He obtains some old newspapers to make his ransom note and then... In what takes him hours, he attempts to prove that Samantha is still alive. This is when he's making that ransom note mm-hmm. that, they, that they found. Okay, so this gets, it's just getting worse and worse all the time. He does this by sewing her eyes open with the fishing line and using glue and tape to give her face some expression. Then after applying makeup to her face and body, he braids her hair. This is the braid that you were talking about that her dad, Jamie, said she would never never wear wear her hair like that. He then takes a Polaroid picture of her body next to a copy of the February 15th edition of the Anchorage Daily newspaper. 
he then starts the ransom process. And I mean, Hannah's gone into all of this, so you already know this. I'm not going to go into it any further. Meanwhile, Samantha's body begins to decompose. Keyes decides the best way to hide her remains is to, to dismember her. So he, I mean, I just hate saying all of these things. Again, it's a trigger. He cuts off her limbs and puts her remains into two rolling suitcases. He then triple wrapped the suitcases in large rubbish sacks. Um, and then a few days after doing this, he takes one of the bags to Matanuska Lake, where he disposes of it by making a hole in the ice and dropping it in. So he's trying to pretend he's ice fishing. Right. Um, and I think he even manages, to, like, I think it's quite common to put a little like, tent or a little cover over yourself yeah, to keep to, warm. Yeah, to keep away, like the elements away. Yeah, so he just does that and then sure nobody's watching him and no. nobody can see him do it. Um, so he chooses to do the same thing with the second bag, but as not to draw too much attention to himself, he does this on a separate trip. There's so much more to this story, but we're already an hour in. (laughs) So, and I mean, it's going to take another hour to finish it. There's a a lot more. And we'll find out exactly how or if Samantha is recovered um, or um, also what other crimes he has committed. And they actually just get worse and and worse. Yeah, And if you think this story is crazy so far, I mean, it just gets crazier and crazier. It really does. So guys, we will see you next week for the second part of Israel Keys. But do make sure to, uh, if you don't already, follow us on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. And please, if any of your friends like true crime as well or are interested in it, do uh, let them know about our podcast. We'll see you all next week for part two of Israel Keys, the horror. Um, thank you all for listening today. And yes. yeah, we don't forget to get in touch with us. Yep, follow everywhere. Our social medias. Don't blame the mom on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. Tell and us. you can email us on don't blame the mom at gmail.com. Exactly. We'll see you next week, part two. Bye. Bye.